Welcome to Horror Nights In Podcast. Scary movies. Uh Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Here's Johnny! You're gonna need a bigger boat. The boogeyman is real. And you found him. Hi guys, and welcome to this episode of Four Nights in Podcast with your one and only host, Crystal. I also have my wonderful co-host, the one and only Roxy the Kitty, who adds in her comments here and there depending on the topic. I upload a new podcast every Monday at noon Eastern Standard Time. So on this podcast, we talk about my life, my favorite horror movie of the week that you guys pick, and anything else horror, so thank you for being here. I also challenge all of you listening to leave me an iTunes review. It not only makes my days better, it also helps other horror fiends find me. You can also find me on the socials, on Twitter at HorrorDaddiesRUs, Instagram at Horror Nights and Podcast, and on Tumblr at Horror Nights and Podcasts. So be sure to follow me on there for all the latest Horror Nights and news. So, on this episode of Horror Nights and Podcast, we are delving into the 2002 horror film Cabin Fever. I'll be giving you the Rotten Tomatoes, the IMDb score, then delving deep into the plot, characters, and my overall honest and horrific opinion of the film. So before we get into the bread and butter of this episode, I wanted to thank all of you for the continued support. We have now reached over 5,000 plays on SoundCloud and almost 2,000 followers on Twitter. Horror Nights In is a hobby of mine, and of course, I enjoy doing it, so I'm super excited to see how my numbers have grown over the past 10 months. And that is all thanks to you, so thank you. Also, be sure to stick around until the end of this podcast because I'm doing a mini-review of the short horror film Fried Berry. Rotten Tomatoes gave Cabin Fever a 62% with 44% of the audience liking it. IMDb gave this film a 5.6 out of 10. Cabin Fever was released in 2002 with a running time of 92 minutes. It was directed by Eli Roth and also co-written by Roth and Randy Perlstein. So Perlstein was roommates with Eli Roth in film school. He had already written a rough draft of the script and asked Perlstein's help in fleshing out the script into a feature length. So Eli Roth is most known for this film, Hostel, Grindhouse, and most recently, The House with the Clock on the Walls. I have always loved his films and feel like he gets a bad rap, but that could be just my perception. So this film was actually remade back in 2016, but received 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. So I wanted to look look up why it was remade, and there wasn't much of an explanation. And the most bizarre thing was that it used the same exact script as the original. It spawned the first sequel titled Cabin Fever, Spring Fever back in 2009, and a second called Cabin Fever, Patient Zero, which was released in 2014. So to this date, I have not seen either of these, but according to my brother, they are a super gore fest. Yes, I do have a brother and he loves horror too, so shout out to you. So a short IMDb synopsis of Cabin Fever is five college graduates rent a cabin in the woods and begin to fall victim to a horrifying flesh-eating virus which attracts the unwanted attention 
of the locals. So now I'm just going to play you the trailer that was released in 2002. You know when you've known someone a long time and you just want to kiss them just to see if they're a good kisser or not? There's nothing wrong with that, right? Stay. opens with the credits and there is a clean white background with birds chirping that quickly descends into a brownish red background with flies buzzing. The opening scene is a man who we, who we assume lives in the woods with his dog. He is returning home from hunting and sees his dog is not responding to him. He then lifts up the leg of his dog and we see that the dog has been cut from front to back and his insides are gone. The man screams, which transitions to our main group of friends leaving their college campus. The five friends, Paul, Karen, Marcy, Jeff, and Bert, are your typical college kids getting out of town to blow off some steam. The group stops your very cliche, odd family-run, kind of creepy convenience store where they see a young boy swing on a porch swing. Paul decides to be friendly and try to introduce himself, but the boy responds with not shaking his hand, but biting it instead. The boy's father rushes out and grabs onto his son, and he releases Paul's hand. The boy's father then tells Paul to go around back and wash his hand out in the stream while the others go inside the store. The older cashier, and I assume the other store owner, asks the group about their plans, to which Jeff tells them they're renting a cabin in the woods for a week. He then warns them about the woods, but they get sidetracked, and we never really get an answer as to why the storekeeper told them to be careful. The group makes it to their cabin, and it's, it's pretty desolate and deserted all around them. So it seems that Marcy and Jeff are in a relationship Paul is in love with Karen, and Jeff is the perverted stoner and the comic relief. While Marcy and Jeff get down with some safe sex, Paul and Karen go down to the lake and go swimming. Bert is apparently taking his BB gun and going to shoot some squirrels. So, side note, this film definitely would not have been accepted by the generation now because of their use of the R-word and using gay as an adjective. The world was a much different place in 2002 when this film was released, so I'm curious to see if these words were changed for the 2016 remake, and I have to assume that they were. 
As Paul and Karen are walking to the lake, we get a little backstory on their friendship slash relationship. They have known each other since they were in seventh grade, and Paul has always been in love with her. We then get some cutscenes of Bert hunting for squirrels and Marcy and Jeff still preoccupied with each other. Back with Paul and Karen, Karen then hints at wanting to kiss Paul just to see if he's a good kisser since she's known him for so long. She then slowly leans in and kisses Paul. Before anything else can happen, though, she slides off the raft and she swims away. Bert then has his first encounter with the man we saw in the beginning of the film, but now it appears the man is very sick and Bert has now accidentally shot him with his BB gun. The man is begging Bert for help and coming closer to him, which of course is freaking Bert out. He tells the man to stay back, but he keeps coming towards him. Bert then shoots the ground in front of him and the man backs away and falls back into the ditch that he came from. The next scene is Bert coming back to their cabin, clearly messed up from seeing the sick man and, of course, from shooting at him. It's now later in the night, and the group is sitting around the campfire, roasting marshmallows and telling scary stories. Paul then tells the friends the story of their local bowling alley. Apparently, one night, the employees working were held hostage and tied to chairs, and they were gagged. The intruder then hit them all in a circle so they could face each other while he bashed each one of them over the head with a ball-peen hammer, killing them all. The guy then goes and gets the fire axe, and he starts chopping off their limbs. The police end up finding six bloody torsos tied to their chairs. The murderer was apparently some disgruntled employee and even took the limbs and bowled with them, and the cops even found a head of one of the employees in the ball return still smiling. Paul then starts cracking up and breaks the tension, and everyone starts laughing too. Paul then gets up to walk around and runs into the into a new man standing with a different dog, and we get a jump scene. This man being the writer and director of the film himself, Eli Roth. But here he is just playing some guy named Grimm in the woods with a huge bag of weed. The group starts bonding with Grimm, but then they hear rain, so they decide to pack up. Grimm says that he'll be back. The friends are now back inside when they hear a knock on the door and assume that it's Grimm, but they open the door and see it's actually the sick man that Bert had shot at earlier. The man now looks even more sick, but recognizes Bert, who then slams the door in his face. The sick man then gets into the gets into their only means of transportation, their jeep, and starts it, but he can't seem to get it moving. The group grabs the only weapons they can find to defend themselves to get the man to leave them alone. They run to the car, but before they could get him out, he starts throwing up blood all over the place. Windows are now smashed, and Bert has now shot at the car. The group ends up setting him on fire, and he runs off into the woods. So they're now back inside, very shaken and commenting on his skin, and that he looked like he was turned inside out. It's now the next morning, and we see the damage to the truck, and the group is still very much on edge. Marcy decides to forego the arguing boys and go get help. So in the next scene, it shows a sick man laying face down in a river, clearly dead. The camera then pans to a pipe that is running to what I assume is a water supply to the town, and the cabin is also connected to the same water. Paul is getting a glass of water for a very still-shaken Karen, who is now packing her things because she wants to leave. 
She, of course, then takes a sip of the water to calm down. So back with Bert and Jeff, who are on foot also looking for help, they come across a farm with a farmer who is gutting a pig, very frustrated by the fact that it is infected. She then starts yelling at Bert and Jeff when she sees them about the sick pigs, but eventually calms down to help them radio in for a tow truck and for help. They then start to explain how some crazy guy came out of the woods last night and messed up their truck, how they hit him with a bat. They then quickly realize that the crazy guy was actually related to the farmer. They start freaking out, decline the help, and they leave. So back with Marcy, who is the true VIP, is now paddling in a canoe to go look for help. She pulls up to a private beach and comes upon a lake house, goes inside, but only finds Bert and Jeff inside and no one else. Marcy is still insisting they need to call the police. The scene then cuts to the cabin, and the deputy is there questioning Paul about the commotion from last night. There's definitely something off about this deputy because he seems more interested in how they're partying than the guy that they attacked and the fact that there's blood all over the place. So in the next scene, Karen is laying in bed and has finished off her glass of water and what we can assume is, of course, the very contaminated and diseased water. So now Bert and Paul are cleaning off the truck and Bert asks if Karen has left her room yet but apparently she is still sleeping. Paul then turns and sees Grimm's dog off of his leash, and he's coming towards them, but there's no Grimm. So then we have badass Marcy shoots off the BB gun and scares the dog away. The friends are now back inside, and with Jeff being the only semi-sane one, acknowledges that there's something crazy and sick going on in the woods, and they need to get out before it infects them too. Karen is now awake and is still drinking the infected water and runs off telling the others that she feels nauseous. The others are now left contemplating how fast they can fix the car while Marcy gets up and goes to take a bath. We also find out that it was Jeff's mom who told them to get a cabin, which I never really picked up until picked up on until now. The camera then pans down. We see there was a cup of tea sitting in front of Marcy. In the next scene, Paul is bringing Karen a glass of water because, of course, Karen then invites Paul to stay with her and they both fall asleep. It is now dark and Paul wakes up and is starting to make some moves on Karen, but then realizes something isn't right, pulls out his hand and realizes that she is infected. He looks down at his hand and sees blood, pushes back the covers and sees that her leg is completely infected. He then looks over at the sink, and we see there is blood all over it and all over the mirror. This causes the others to run into the room to see that she is infected, and we get the very iconic don't leave me from Karen. They then slam the door and leave her inside. The group then does a full body inspections on each other before deciding to move Karen into a shed to quarantine her. She obviously is not happy about this and feels as if her friends have turned their backs on her. Later, Marcy brings her something to eat. We see that Karen is getting worse. The bags under her eyes are super prominent and her nose is very red. Paul is now out looking for help, but instead is a peeping Tom and gets caught 
and ruins any chance of them getting help when the owner spots him watching his wife through his bedroom window. Paul then runs back to the cabin, and everyone is on edge with the infection spreading. But before they can decide their next move, they hear a dog barking and snarling at the shed door where Karen is rotting away inside. They call out to her, but they hear no response. They shoot off the BB gun again, scaring off the dog. It is now the next morning, and Bert is able to get the car to start, so they grab Karen to see that her legs are completely infected and covered in sores. Bert is calling for everyone so they can leave, but then starts coughing up blood and is starting to show signs of the infection on his stomach. But before they can get Karen into the car, she starts coughing up even more blood and collapses. Paul then notices that Bert is getting paler by the second, looks at him and says, you're not looking too good. How sick are you? In frustration, Bert drives off telling his friends he's going to get help. While Marcy and Paul are trying to help Karen get back to the shed, Jeff is grabbing beers with a towel over his mouth and decides it's best for him to leave on foot. So he's basically telling his friends that he doesn't care for their survival and is looking out for number one. So they then get managed to get Karen back in the shed while Bart is still driving into town when he scratches the back of his neck and sees that he is scratching his own skin off. Then we have the iconic plane crash scene with Paul and Marcy. Now, I do remember watching this part of the film and not expecting that to come up in her mouth at all. So while Paul and Marcy are going at it, Karen is continuing to get worse and worse in the shed. We also see that as Paul grabs onto Marcy's back while they're having sex, her skin is starting to show signs of infection. After they are finished, Paul grabs some mouthwash to pour on himself, as if that would work, while Marcy notices the marks that are on her back. So now we're back with Bert, who's made it into town, and back to the same convenience store they all first went to in the beginning. He quickly gets the attention of the owner, but who notices Bert isn't looking all that great either, and he says that he's going to call a doctor for him. Dennis, the kid from the beginning that bit Paul's hand, is now advancing towards Bert. He then does some karate kid taekwondo moves and quickly and quickly bites Jeff's hand. Or I'm sorry, he bites Bert's hand and the little boy makes a face because he can tell something off is off with Bert's blood. The store owner quickly comes back outside and notices what has happened and he gets pissed. He knows what the sickness is and that the group caught it, so now he wants to stop the spread of the infection. So the next several scenes are cut shots that go back and forth, so I tried to make them as cohesive as possible. I assume the majority of you have seen this film. Back with Paul and Marcy, Paul is leaving to go find Jeff so they can all leave, while Marcy then decides to take a bath, and we see that her back is just getting worse and her skin is peeling away. Meanwhile, Bert is being chased by the store owner who is also shooting at the car. The car eventually dies, and now Bert is on foot, with the three townies hunting him down. While Paul is looking for Jeff, he comes upon a dead, burnt body in the middle of the river. He goes down a very sketchy ladder to inspect it, but loses his balance and falls right into the water 
right on top of the infected and dead body. Once he manages to get out, he looks up and sees that a sign reads Reservoir Caution. He obviously realizes what they have done. Bert is still on foot with the townies close behind him. He then rubs his rotting hands on a tree to throw them off their path, which does work. Back with Marcy, Marcy as she's shaving her legs, and we see that her skin is starting to literally be shaved off with the razor. This scene is beyond cringy as she stands up and is completely covered in blood. She then hears a gunshot and runs outside crying, but she is now faced with a dog that has been literally hunting them for days. The dog sprints toward her as she is running to get to the shed with Karen, who is pretty much half dead at this point. Paul runs back when he hears Marcy screaming, but it's too late. Marcy's in pieces after being mauled by the dog as the camera zooms into her foot in her flip-flop that has been chewed off of her leg. Paul then decides the shed door is open, or he then notices the shed door is open and the dog is eating into Karen's side. He then is able to get away from the dog and goes to check on Karen. He moves her body towards him with his foot, and we see that Karen's face is pretty much no more, and all of her teeth are exposed, but she's still alive. Paul then grabs a shovel and starts beating her head in to essentially put her out of her misery. As Paul is grabbing a bag to leave, he opens the door and sees Bert is crawling up the stairs, barely alive. The townies have now arrived at their cabin to see the mess of bodies and assume it's human sacrifice and throw open the door to shoot a waiting Bert right in the head. As they go to move in, Paul hits one of them with a shovel and he falls backward, shooting off his gun into the stomach of the store owner. Paul then crawls. Paul then comes outside, sees the third townie, and shoves a screwdriver in his ear. Paul then sees the store owner trying to crawl away, but puts a stick to in his head and kills him. So now Paul is running through the woods to find Jeff, warning him not to drink the water. The water is contaminated. He then spots a flashlight in a cave and a pair of legs in the distance. Paul then trips over something and sees that it's actually Grim, the weed guy's torso was separated from his body, and his guts are all hanging out all over the ground of the cave. It's now dark, and Paul has spotted the abandoned cars, and luckily the townies have left the keys inside. So as Paul is driving, he adjusts his back mirror, and while he's doing that, notices he's starting to get a skin rush on his hand. But because he wasn't paying attention, he crashes into a deer. The deer is now pinned into the windshield, so he quickly grabs a shotgun and blows it literally away. Paul is now completely covered in blood from head to toe when the truck dies. The scene then cuts to a group of people having a party, and the deputy is also there, partaking in the party. Upon seeing Paul covered in blood, they all stop and stare. Paul then calls the deputy out for never sending a tow truck, but before anything could happen, his radio goes off and warns them all not to go near a group of kids in the woods because of some skin-eating disease and how they are dangerous. The partygoers urge the deputy to shoot him, but the deputy says the gun is in the car, and Paul is getting worse as he is now spitting up blood on everyone, and everyone starts freaking out. One party goer who has been playing the harmonica 
accidentally gets hit in the face with a guitar, and now the harmonica is in his throat sideways. Paul is throwing up blood on people, and everyone is jumping into their cars and leaving. Paul is now in the middle of a road trying to get someone to stop, but then he collapses. A truck driver finally stops and drops him off at a hospital. We then see that Paul is now in the hospital and is having flashbacks with Karen. He then wakes up and is surrounded by two doctors and a cop who want answers, but Paul is so out of it that he can't answer them. The doctors tell the cops that they weren't able to handle this type of infection, and they all basically say they're going to take him from the hospital and kill him. In the next and almost final scene, we see Jeff coming out of some bushes, and he starts walking back to the cabin to see the carnage of bodies, all while keeping the same towel over his mouth. So at this point, we think he is showing some emotion for his dead friends by saying they're all dead, they're all dead, but all he really cares about is the fact that he made it and that he survived. He then walks outside and is hit with a shower of bullets to his chest. It's the sheriff's department. They are now throwing his dead body onto a pile of other dead bodies. They then throw some gas on it and light him on fire. So in the last and very, very haunting scene of this film, we see that Paul's dead body is infecting the river while two young kids are filling up a cooler with the same water to make lemonade to which the sheriff's department drinks along with a ton of other townspeople. We then see a truck taking water from the same reservoir with the dead body and the film ends. So this film stuck with me because it made my head spin with the last scene. I went into a spiral that not only is that entire town going to get infected, but now wherever that water is going, those people are going to get infected. And once something is in the water supply, it can take a long time to get that under control and even pinpoint where it even started. The sheriff department assumed they did a good enough job with getting rid of the bodies and the evidence, only to find out that they didn't was like, whoa, what's going to happen now kind of moment. So I want to talk about the characters in the film. They are these stereotypical young adults who want to blow off some steam from college. There's Jeff, who is the ultimate douchey guy who is only looking out for himself and meets his demise anyways, even though he abandoned his alleged friends. There's Bert, who really didn't do anyone any harm, just wanted to enjoy his time in the woods, maybe shoot some squirrels, and eat some candy bars. There's Marcy, who starts off as the drop-dead gorgeous eye candy, but once the infection hits, we see she's more of her nurturing side to help her friends and herself survive. There's Karen, who's the sweet and very pretty girl next door who gets infected very quickly after drinking the contaminated water. Lastly, there's Paul, who is sort of the innocent character who seems kind of soft in the beginning and just in love with his longtime friend Karen, who turns into this killing machine before he dies. There isn't a ton of backstory on how they all became friends, or how long, besides Paul and Karen. The film also has an underlying theme of what-would-you-do attitude and the human instinct to survive. And it seemed like as the infection spread throughout the friend group, their bodies literally fell apart. So did their friendships. 
So now I kind of want to move into the kills throughout the film. We have an entire cast pretty much dead from the infection or from the sheriff's department. There is also some random kills like the sideways harmonica in the throat. So as we all know, Eli Roth is known for his gore, and this being his first feature film, he really packed in all the kill scenes here. I was watching a couple reviews on this film, and it seems the scene in this movie that sticks the most with people is the leg shaving scene with Marcy when she's in the bathtub. And I have to agree. Every time I rewatch this film, I get full body chills tingling up my back every time I see this movie. And even when I even talk about it now, it still makes me cringe so much. The other part of this film that really sticks with me is Karen's face when she's dying in the shed. Her face is completely gone. The only thing left of her skin is the top of her nose, her eyes, and her forehead. Her teeth and her jaw, everything completely exposed. Another question I had was how quickly the disease hit them. So it seemed like the disease would hit them and they would be dead within 24 hours. It seemed that Bert was hit pretty quickly. It seemed like he was he was okay one minute and then a few minutes later he was showing signs of it. Now this could all be the kind of disease it is depending on how healthy they were. Karen might have been healthier than Bert. Um... The same can be said for Paul. It seems like he started showing signs towards the end of the film, but of course, him being the main character, he would he would have to um, at least survive three quarters of the way until dying at the very end of the film. I want to get more into the special effects of the film, but I wanted to um, save that for a little bit later. The fact that Eli Roth takes very primal fears, as many writers and directors do, such as infection, contamination, skin-eating disease, but then he kind of adds in all this weird stuff on top of it that makes it almost like a what-the-fuck moment. For example, Dennis the Handbiter randomly yells out pancakes and does the taekwondo moves before biting Bert's hand. So then when Paul is in the hospital, he looks over and sees someone dressed up as a bunny giving an infected Dennis a plate of pancakes. There's also the deputy who only cares about partying. Yes, he is a little bit of a small comic relief, but it's so stupid that it's kind of annoying. I'm not a huge fan of stupid character stories in horror. So um, another part of the film I found very, very interesting was, and I didn't know this, the inspiration for this film was actually from the director himself when he caught a flesh-eating disease while in Iceland riding horses, and the doctor told him that if he hadn't been hospitalized, he would have died within 24 hours. Eli Roth is actually shaving his face and pieces of his skin begin falling off. So I actually found an interview that he did explaining the situation, so I'm going to play a clip of it for you. Well, Cabin Fever came from not just me wanting to make an Evil Dead movie, but from an actual infection I got in my face. Uh, when I was 19, I actually took two months to go to Iceland. I just finished working on an independent film doing the extras casting, and 
my father had been to Iceland and I was offered the opportunity to work on a horse farm training horses. And I was like, done. I went literally from downtown Manhattan in the summer to this farm in Selfus, Iceland with me and all these horses. And it was so much fun. Um, but one of the tasks I had was to clean out a barn that was filled with hay. And I got this weird scratching in my neck and I was like, I was like, what is that? And I looked and there were chunks of flesh in my hand. So of course I went back to sleep thinking that like I'd scratched and had a mosquito bite. And I went to shave the next day and I was looking in the mirror and I thought, wow, did I cut myself? Like I thought I'd cut my chin and it was bleeding, but my neck was covered in blood. And I look and literally I was shaving chunks of my face off like I was peeling a banana. And it not only did it not hurt, it actually felt good because it was so itchy. And I remember the Icelanders were like, did you cut your, the American doesn't know how to shave. Like, they're looking at me. They come out with blood all over the bathroom. Like, ha ha, you cut a pimple. And a fam, the family friend that knew my father was a doctor, was like picking me up to go to the Reykjavik for the weekend. She's like, what happened to your face? I was like, I don't know. She's like, we're going to the hospital. And so interesting, but disgusting to say the least. So we then have the cinematics of the film, the music, the camera angles, and the special effects. The music was great because it had that eerie violin music that is iconic to horror, but there's also that strange elevator music that plays when the deputy was around. Anytime I hear that in this film, it's always very telling and iconic, and I'm like, yep, I'm watching Cabin Fever because I remember that music. Uh, there's also the very ominous slow motion scenes that build intensity and anxiety. The gunshot heard in the slow motion head turn of Marcy and Paul towards the end of the film is an example. There's also the red lens effect as if we were looking through the eyes of the skin eating disease as it rips through the forest. So for the special effects, the iconic George Nicoretto worked as a special effects supervisor for this film. Um, which I kind of touched on a little bit, like when we see the sores on Marcy's legs, um, which still just makes me cringe as I continue to think about the scene again. Um, also, when Paul falls on top of the dead body in the reservoir, makes anyone who watches just want to take a shower immediately after. So this film has been notarized as being one of those films that was almost watch if you dare, especially when it first came out in the early 2000s. I enjoy this film because if you listen to my other podcasts, you know my most favorite horror films are young adults getting themselves into murderous situations and meeting their untimely demise. And of course, Cap and Fever is the epitome of that. Alright guys, so as I said in the beginning of this episode, we're going to be doing a quick review on the short horror film Fried Berry. So Fried Berry was released June 3rd of this year and has a running time of 3 minutes and 44 seconds. It was written and directed by Ryan Cougar. So Ryan is a Cape Town-based actor slash director who has been making movies since he was only 14 years old. He was born in Liverpool and moved to South Africa in 2008 due to his family ties. So Ryan, as a winner of the South African Music Awards, MTV, and the GOEMA Awards, Ryan is widely celebrated for his outstanding work as a music video director, having directed over 100 music videos. 
As a director of dozens of internationally acclaimed short films, Ryan is known for his distinct visual style and character-driven stories. He has recently completed his first independent feature film, Fried Berry, which is slated for release in 2019. So, the short was also produced by James C. Williamson. Now, before forming his production company, the Department of Special Features, at the age of 25, he has experience producing marketing content for studios such as Sony Pictures, Paramount, and Netflix. He also worked on the 2006 documentary Roots, A New Vision. It helped garner the film an Emmy nomination. So James, the producer, has since focused on producing indie films on the cutting edge of narrative with his first feature, Fried Berry. He studied at the University of Southern California and also earned his master's degree in transmedia filmmaking. He's currently based in Cape Cod, South Africa, and is writing and developing his second feature film slated to shoot in 2019. Alrighty, so now we're going to move into uh, the short film. So the short is very jarring and almost a little unsettling. So as some of you might know, I used to be a site supervisor for a security company. And I had one site that was very old, dilapidated. It was actually a chemical plant. So the setting of the short reminded me of that place. The place gave me the creeps every single time I walked in there because it never mattered how bright it was. It could be the brightest Monday morning, but once you walk inside that building, it was pitch black. So Fried Berry the Shorts actually definitely truly gave me the same vibes that I felt when I was there. I'm really looking forward to the full-length film to see how this film pans out. So I would definitely go check out the short at the link. The link is actually going to be in the show notes and let me know your thoughts. You can also tweet Ryan and let him know too. There's also a ton of other clips if you check out the YouTube channel that I was actually just on there, and it looks like um, they kind of talk about the interesting adaptation process of Friedberry the film, um, and they kind of just go through. I mean, if you guys want to check it out, it's it's pretty cool. So if you if you just go to YouTube and you search Friedberry, which there's also a link in the show notes too. There's a bunch of different videos on there, and it's just the trailer is very haunting. The special effects that are done are so good, um, and it's only. Being, with it only being three minutes long, um, you know, it definitely definitely captures um, your attention. So basically, it, what the feature film will be about is an alien assumes control of a drug addict's body and takes it on a bizarre joyride through Cape Town. So I'm super interested in seeing the full-length feature just because um, there's been a lot of buzz in the horror community about this short film. The short has already had 57 official selections worldwide, and it has 12 wins at film festivals. So if you haven't checked this out, I would definitely go watch it. It's only a few minutes long, but it'll definitely get you into the idea of the world of fried berry. So, and I also wanted to say thank you again to Ryan for allowing me to review his uh, short, and definitely go check it out, guys. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Horror Nights in Podcasts with your one and only host, me, Crystal, and my co-host, Roxy. If you enjoyed this episode, go listen to another one, binge it out, leave me a review, and have the best week wherever you are and whatever you do. Remember to always give your honest and horrific opinion no matter what. Bye, guys.